0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in partnership with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. In 1929, Bernadine Zoldfritz left Paris on a train bound for China. She's on her way to her fourth wedding and her fourth husband, an American investment banker named Chester Fritz, who proposed after a whirlwind meeting earlier in Shanghai. Bernadine is then forced to find herself things to do in interwar China, and her husband isn't helping much. That's how Susan Bloomberg Kaysen's newest book, Bernadine's Shanghai Salon, The Story of the Doyen of Old China, starts, as she charts Bernadine's life as she sets up a theater and makes friends with illustrious figures like Lin Yu Tang, Victor Sassoon, and Anna May Wong. Susan is also the author of her memoir, Good Chinese Wife, A Love Affair with China Gone Wrong. She is also the co editor of Hong Kong Noir and a regular trip to the Asian Review of Books, Cha Asian Literary Review, and World Literature Today. Her work has also appeared in the LA Review of Books, Pop Matters, and the South China Morning Post. Today, Susan and I talk about Bernadine, her life, and why interwar Shanghai remains such a compelling setting for fiction and nonfiction writers. So Susan, you know... I want to maybe ask a general question, which is, why write a book about Bernadine Zoltfritz in the first place?
0: Well, it goes back to about 25 or 30 years ago. I picked up Emily Hahn's memoir, China to Me, which was written in 1944, but I I read it in the late mid to late 90s. And Bernadine's name appears on page five. I don't really think about her after that, but maybe... I don't know, like a few years later, Emily Hahn has an a authorized biography by Ken Cuthbertson. And he writes about Bernadine. But it's a little different because Emily's portrayal of her is very positive. And she credits Bernadine with introducing her to different people in Shanghai. But in Ken Cuthbertson's book, Bernadine appears as like a, a gold digger, a busybody, a socialite. And that's when I start to kind of pay attention to her. And throughout the early 2000s and the 2010s, she appears in more and more books. And it it doesn't like connect to the original persona that Emily Hahn wrote about her. So it was really after Therese Grosco's book, Shanghai Grand, came out, I started to think about maybe finding out more about her life because... It seemed like she wasn't being done justice. And then when I found out she was from Illinois, just like I am, I wanted to look more into it. And so I found that she was really central to a lot of the books that have come out from that time about the Sassoons, about Emily Hahn, about Sin Mei Zhao, who is a poet and Emily Hahn's common law husband. But because Bernadine put all those people together and without her, those stories wouldn't have happened. So- that's that's pretty much i mean it's kind of a long convoluted story but that's how i i came to write about her
1: um i mean she does seem to be extraordinarily well connected and i'm jumping ahead in the history a bit but um she was in contact with victor sassoon he, she was writing him letters um she met anna Mae wong um she was i think quite close with uh with with lin yutang i think um who were some of the famous people that 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 she was able to come into contact with?
0: Yeah, all of those. So Victor Sassoon was her was her husband Chester's landlord. He had this Sassoon house which is where the Cafe Hotel was and it's now the Peace Hotel. And so Chester and his two business partners had an office in Sassoon house and I loved that their stationery would just say their the name of their company. Culbertson, Swan, and Fritz. And it would say Sassoon House, Shanghai, because that's all you needed to know. And so Bernardine met Victor there um, in the building because she would come and, and meet Chester at work. And they had this kind of love-hate friendship. He was very um, supportive of her in some ways, but then also antagonized her in others. And she's the one that introduced... Victor to Emily Han and Bernadine knew Emily Han back in their Chicago days when they both were writing. And Lin Yutong was a friend that she met um, through Hu Shur, who was a, an academic and a uh, an intellectual. And Anna May Wong was someone she had met just on a trip to London in 1934. And then Anna May came to China in 1936 because she was not cast in some big roles mainly the um the good earth because um that was supposed to be like her breakout role in in a in a role that wasn't um derogatory where she didn't die at the end so when she didn't get that anime came out to china to show americans who she was and to make this film on her own terms and Bernadine was someone that she came across and they developed this really. Wonderful friendship. And they, they wrote letters to each other as anime traveled around China. And Bernadine made a trip up to Beijing, or it was called Peking or Beiping or Peiping. The name changed all the time. Um, Bernadine made a trip up there to visit anime. And then they continued their friendship in Hollywood after um, during World War II and after. So she just seemed to be kind of in the right place at the right time. But it was also her personality that was very. Um, I don't know. It drew people in. And that's why when she was written about in these other books as someone who wasn't nice and who was a gold digger, it didn't really connect with this way that she brought people together and continued these friendships decades after she met these, you know, these big, larger than life people, because the letters show that, you know, they, her letters to Emily Hahn go through like the 1970s.
1: Um, so maybe let's go back to the to the beginning of of the story, which is which is Bernadine's move to Shanghai. So what actually gets her on that train in 1929 um, to travel to the other end of the Eurasian continent to, to China?
0: Right. It seems like uh, so this was right before the Great Depression, and uh, so it was maybe a few months before the um, New York Stock Exchange, you know, exploded, but. She was in Paris from 1925 until 1929. Had done a little bit of a it was called an out student program which is continuing education in at Cambridge in 1927, but was thought she would become this great writer in Paris. She was friends with Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald and had all these people around her, but she couldn't finish a, a writing project. So she had this friend who was an American heiress named Barbara Harrison. And Barbara was going on a trip through the Middle East and Asia with a journalist named Walter Harris, who is four decades older than her. And the two of them could not travel together without a chaperone. So Barbara asked her friend Bernadine to go with, even though Bernadine was more of Barbara's age than Walter's age. Um, And so the barbara walter thing didn't work out and Bernadine and barbara ditched him in southeast asia but by the time they got to shanghai they had been on the road for about 13 months and Bernadine met chester at a polo match and she didn't think about him after that they got along but she was really personable with other people so he was just one of these other you know people she met on her travels and when she got back to paris with barbara she was met with dozens of telegrams from Chester and he wanted her to come back and marry him. He claimed he had met, never met anyone like her. She was, um, she was different than the other expats in Shanghai that he knew because she could have these like great conversations and she knew all these people. And she was really at this kind of um, crossroads. Her friends in Paris were leaving to either go to the South of France or they were going to New York And she had a daughter from her first marriage who was in her early teens at that time and was at a Swiss boarding school run by a protege of Isadora Duncan. And so Bernadine didn't know what to do with her life. And her friends started to tell her maybe she should consider Chester's proposal. Her first three marriages didn't work out. And she knew them before she married them. And her third divorce happened at the age of 29. So at this time, she was 33. And... She decided that maybe if the others didn't work because she knew them, maybe without great expectations, this fourth one could work because at that time there were still people were, it wasn't arranged marriages, but people were still, um, marrying because that was the only way they could date. I mean, it was, she was very traditional in that way where she didn't want to just live with someone or date casually. She wanted that. Official document, and so, and she was a romantic. So she convinced herself that this could work, and she got back on the Trans-Siberian. That's how she and Barbara had left China in the first place, and went back and met him in Manchuria, and they got married at the American Consulate in Dairen, which is Dalian now.
1: So let's, I mean, so so now she's in Shanghai just to find herself things to do. Um, you know, one of the main things is the international arts theater um so what how did bernie get get involved in the arts in the theater and and what kinds of
0: performances did they put on yeah it was a really great thing so it goes back to her her teenage years during her first marriage in chicago she acted at something called the little theater of chicago and this was the predecessor of off-broadway It was the first theater company in the U.S. to produce plays by George Bernard Shaw and Henrik Ibsen. It was the first theater company to treat puppetry as an art. And other little theaters popped up all over the U.S. and in London and Berlin. And so this is how she had that background in the theater. And she based her international arts theater, or as she called it, the IAT, um, after this little theater. And so it wasn't just a... A company that it was all volunteer run that that produced plays but they had lectures they had they had classes on stage makeup and lighting and set design they had puppetry just like they did in Chicago and her first production was the way that the theater came about was she had a salon at her home where she opened her living room to people who were interested in the arts and They came like 150 people a night, so it was getting to be a little bit big. And she, at one of these salons, she met a Russian Jewish Swiss-trained doctor named Aronov Shamilov, and he was a friend of Sin Mei Zhao. And when Bernadine found out that Aronov Shamilov had come to China to work on his music, and he, he had composed a number of ballets based on Chinese folklore that um there was one that had been produced in the 20s in Oregon but bernadine was so um was so like attracted to this idea of of Shamilov taking you know a chinese folktale and turning it into a ballet because he was russian and ballet is you know russian and she wanted to produce it on a grand stage. And Paul French wrote in the South China Morning Post mm. a number of years ago about Anna Pavlova coming through Shanghai in the early 20s. And so that created this great interest in ballet. And so there were all these ballet schools in Shanghai because there were a lot of Russian refugees there and who had had training in that. So there was a um, there was a community in Shanghai. Of Chinese dancers who had been studying ballet, and so Bernardine's idea was to produce this ballet. It was called "The Soul of the Chin," with a, an all Chinese cast of dancers, and she did that um, in 1933. And of Shamalov was a great like partner in the arts with her because they did more. They produced more ballets after that, and um, big. Plays. There was a there was one in um, in England that or in London that ran a thousand nights. It was a it was a, again. It was this kind of a cross cultural um, production. There was a playwright in Ch- in China named Shuri Shong and or in England he went by S I Shong and he wanted to be produced in on the West End, and so he went to London in 1932. And he was told there that you know, his, his um, plays would be welcome, but he had to write Chinese plays. He couldn't write something set in mm-hmm. the English countryside. So he wrote this play called Lady Precious Stream, which was based on a Peking opera that would normally run seven hours, but he cut it down to two. He took out all the music and there was a little bit of a supernatural um, element to it. He, he got rid of that because he thought London audiences wouldn't go for that. And there was a polygamy thing there and he got rid of that too. So this was a huge hit in 1934, 1935, and 1936. And so in 1935, Bernadine wanted to produce it in Shanghai. But the problem with the production in London was that every single character, even though it was a Chinese play, was cast with a white character who acted in yellow face. And Bernadine wanted to do it the right way. And so she cast everyone... um, in her play, um, they were all Chinese actors. Some of them were professional, some of them were amateur. And it was, Shanghai had never seen anything like it. So it, it ran for two nights originally, and so many people wanted to see it. So she found, she had to find another venue because the theater that she had booked for the first two nights couldn't do a third night. And it, it brought people from Chinese and foreign backgrounds together. This wasn't really, common unless they were in the business world mm-hmm. so this um, this was in 1935 and then after that the IAT just kept producing ballets and and smaller um, they did some Shakespeare and they did um, they had an evening where foreign non Chinese speakers, performed in, in Chinese, and I, I'm guessing it was Shanghai Hua, I don't know, or Mandarin, but I'm guessing it was the Shanghai dialect, and then Chinese actors performed in English, and so it was, it was something that um, Shanghai had never had before, and people were drawn to it, because no matter what their differences were, and it was a really contentious time there, I mean, the Civil War was, you know, raging on, and there were um there were people like from jardine which was you know a hong kong conglomerate Mm. and the soviet foreign minister and they worked together on these things so it it brought people from like i said like different spectrums and it was um and she loved that she just loved bringing people together she didn't need to be in the spotlight she didn't need to get credit and in the programs i found from these performances her name never appears like front and center there's always committees you know that would arrange these productions and maybe she'd be in the committee or her husband chester would even though i don't think he really did that much but Mm -hmm. she would put him on there so she didn't take credit for any of this because her whole like goal was just to perform to you know have these things performed and to and to inspire other people to perform or direct or, um, produce different, um, pieces in the arts.
1: Um, you mentioned Chester, uh, which is a segue to, um, to my next question or, or, or set of questions, you know, um, you talk a lot about her family life, Bernie's family life in the book, which, um, for lack of a better term, I'll say is, is, is pretty messy um chester has his issues um you know I, I'm, trying, I'm trying to think of what of what modern day parlance we'd we'd use to describe what chester is um the best word i'm coming up with is man child maybe but, yes. but basically yes. <laughs> um but but uh so 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 chester is is kind of a man child uh and Brian also has a very strange relationship with her daughter rosemary who's um often in boarding school and the, and the interactions between Buradine and Rosemary and Chester are also um, extremely strained. Um, And I guess it being conscious that, you know, this, this is still the thirties. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's pre a lot of the social changes we, we, we take for granted today. Um, I mean, was it challenging for her as a, as a, you know, many times divorcee, let's say quasi single parent, Um, far removed from the rest of her family. I mean, was was it challenging for Brandy to kind of juggle these different, you know, this very kind of strained family life?
0: It was. And I think in Shanghai, especially she felt like she had to pick sides or like choose either Chester or Rosemary, but this, but this went back before she married Chester. So it, it's not, I don't think it's accurate to blame it on the marriage um, with Chester, but this was something i didn't know about when i started the research i didn't know anything about her family life and i wasn't really sure i was going to have that part in the book but there was so much in the papers that she had written that were unpublished and when she was she had rosemary when she was 19 and her husband was an alcoholic and there was a big custody battle which was unusual then because divorce was still unusual. And she got custody of Rosemary and, and she really fought hard for her. And so after that, it seemed like she just went the opposite and she didn't fight for her at all. There, um, I was, I got a lot of my material, the unpublished papers from Bernardine's cousins in California. And one of them said that there's a chance that Rosemary was sent to boarding school at the age of five so it started really early and every time Bernadine moved from chicago to new york to paris she would put her in boarding school and so they never developed a close relationship and then when Bernadine went to shanghai rosemary was an early teen so she spent her whole teenage life without a mother and i think that was really hard and chester he was you know, he was a big obstacle in that relationship, but he would, became an orphan at the age of twelve. So I feel like he he, he kind of was like um permanently a twelve year old boy, and um, Rosemary was also immature for a lot of her adult life. and I think it's because they didn't have parents, either mothers or fathers, in their lives. When they had, you know, they were going through all these changes, and it was it was very hard for for Bernadine. And then when she she left Shanghai in 1937, when Rosemary was sick, she, Rosemary was acting in New York, and it was the first and only time Chester has ever pushed Bernadine to go take care of Rosemary. And then the war broke out um, in in 19 late in August 1937, so Bernadine never went back, and she and Rosemary stayed together in LA um, for decades, but they never could really repair their relationship. And I think Bernadine often felt that it was as much of Rosemary's responsibility to reach out to Bernadine as it was Bernadine's job to um, connect with Rosemary. And that is not right because the parent is a parent, no matter how old the kid is. And so they have to, I mean, you know, hindsight is, but I think they have to, um, I think Bernadine's mistake was not taking on this parent role. And she treated Rosemary more as a friend as Rosemary became a teenager and young adult. So,
1: so you mentioned kind of Bernadine's post Shanghai life, um, uh, very briefly there. Um, you know, I mean, maybe just to close off the section on, on her biography, um, you know, what? what what gets bernadine out of shanghai and then what's the rest of her post shanghai life like
0: yeah so it's this um this illness and it's not really known what what it was bernadine um rosemary started drinking and would develop um really like severe alcohol problem so she fell ill in the summer of 1937 and like i said chester Pushed Rose, uh, pushed Bernadine to go take care of Rosemary in New York. She was acting at Orson Welles Mercury Theater, and then the two mother daughter went to LA because Bernadine and Chester had thought about buying a house in in Los Angeles for when Chester would eventually retire. And then World War Two broke out. It was started in, in Shanghai, and Bernadine never went back. There was never um, a. a decision not to go back but it was just as war got you know it wasn't going to let up anytime soon mm-hmm. and then chester came back for a visit in 1940 and he didn't he obviously like was not in the marriage anymore and so they ended up divorcing in the mid-40s there's some question as to whether it was 1944 or 1945 she says one thing but then the records you know the the um divorce records say something else and so she was she never married after that she continued to ha- open her home as a salon people like Henry Miller and Aldous Huxley were regulars there but she wasn't special in in Hollywood because there were other women who had salons at their home so she was just one of many in Shanghai she was the only one so she felt like she did a lot more um in Shanghai than she did in Hollywood. And this was also the, like the golden age of Hollywood where there was so much going on. There so many changes and it was like, she wasn't the center and she didn't need to be the center, but I think she felt more, um, like she was doing more when she was in Shanghai because more people relied on her. And in Hollywood, she, she didn't, um, she didn't write much. She didn't travel much after that. She didn't, I don't think she left the U S after she got to, to LA in
1: 1937,
0: which is weird because she was going everywhere in her, in her twenties and thirties. So she, um, she kind of fizzled out. There's a Warren Beatty movie Reds that won the Oscar in 82, I think. And Bernadine was, was one of the witnesses. It was about John Reed and, Louise Bryant, who were journalists and they got into the communist movement and went to the Soviet Union when it was new. And Bernadine knew them. And so also like Rebecca West and Henry Miller. And so they were all these witnesses that were kind of brought a uh, a personal, you know, personal reflection about these characters played by Warren Beatty and Diane Keaton. And so she, Bernadine did not appear on screen in Reds she was just a voiceover and that was the last thing she ever did. And she died soon after that um, in 1982 from complications of emphysema and she was a, she was a chain smoker and that mm. caught up to her. So um, she could barely talk at the end. I mean, she, her voice is all but gone.
1: Um, so I want to talk about Shanghai for a second. Um, you know, you're, you're not the first author um, on the show to have written about the interwar period, um, you know, just to name a few. I mean, uh, Chloe Gong's novel at the very beginning of the show and we did this, set her book in kind of re- like um, re- Republic of China era Shanghai. We've had Paul French on the show who's written about this period uh same with Joseph Sassoon and James Zimmerman. So there's something clearly about this period of history that, that people like to look at, to study, to write about um, the people that live in Shanghai, what the Shanghai what 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 the city of Shanghai was like. Um, I mean in your view, kind of what is it about like this setting and this period that makes it so fascinating um as a thing to write about?
0: Well I think it was different than most places in the world because there were these foreign concessions that um, you know like unlike Hong Kong like Hong Kong was a colony so it was like the whole the whole of Hong Kong mm-hmm. was British and Macau and and um, you know like Saigon and things like that but but Shanghai was carved into these like little colonies and th- these foreign concessions and it brought people from all over and they weren't necessarily part of these, the rulers of these foreign concessions. So um, there were refugees from, you know, white Russian refugees. There were Jewish refugees from, from Russia. There became, I mean, I first became interested in in this time when it was probably the late nineties where more news about the German and Eastern European Jewish refugees who came to Shanghai. There was, there was a new documentary in the late nineties and many novels and memoirs about that time and there were about 20,000 of these Jewish refugees who came to Shanghai because no one was really controlling customs and so it was it was a special place because no other place would would allow Jewish refugees there there were Chinese refugees from all over China who came to Shanghai and it was um, you know it wasn't it wasn't all you know, luxury. I mean, it was, there was this horrible wealth disparity. There was a ton of disease there. um, It wasn't uncommon for someone to assassinate their political rival. So it was, it was a difficult time, but there was also a lot of hope I felt with the arts and with people coming together from different backgrounds that didn't always happen in other places. So there was, I thought, like a lot of potential, and then the war ruined. I mean, the two wars. It wasn't just it wasn't just World War II, but then it was the Chinese Civil War resumed after that, and things were never the same. But that was a lot like um, like Berlin in the twenties. You know, it wasn't the same after the war and or during the war. But that was a place that also brought people together from all different backgrounds and countries through the arts. And Paris was like that also. So um, I think that's I didn't really want to set out to write a Shanghai book at first because she had been in Paris and New York and Chicago. So I thought Shanghai would just be one of the stops along her journey. But it was really where she did most of her work and was most influential. And Mm -hmm. um, and people remembered her from Shanghai. So it kind of just ended up being a Shanghai book. And I'm glad it did, because. That's really her story.
1: Um, well, I want to end by maybe asking about the, the process of, of writing her, well, researching and writing <laughs> her story. So, you know, Bernadine, um, you mentioned she kind of pops up in all these different books, um, all these different biographies of other people. Um, and she seems like someone who is important because she connected famous people together rather than necessarily being famous herself. Um, not there's anything wrong with that. Um, You know, consummate networker, I think is maybe the term we might use today. But in your view, is it harder to write about someone with that kind of role? Or maybe is it easier?
0: Well, I thought it was harder because there wasn't much published about her. Mm -hmm. And I had to really dig to find anything. And I was really lucky. It was late 2018 where I came across an online journal that her granddaughter had written for. It was a Buddhist publication. And so I contacted the editor of that journal because this had been published online several years before that. And so I told her, I told the editor I was writing a book, but I really wasn't sure I was going to have enough information. And I wanted to get in touch with the granddaughter because it seemed like the granddaughter was the only living relative in her nuclear family. And that was true. And an hour later i heard from the granddaughter and so we um she's a buddhist nun she lives in in washington state and she gave me some photos that appear in the book but she also told me that she has cousins in the san francisco bay area and in la who have a lot of Bernadine's papers and i contacted them and they were so gracious to invite me into their home they're both of their homes, and I was able to take screenshots of hundreds of papers Bernadine had written. Not all about Shanghai, but a lot were. And they also had more photos. They had books that she had collected, and we became very close. Both of these cousins, and and then Yale had a lot of paper of uh, a lot of letters that Bernadine had written to people, or they had written to her. So in the end, I felt like I was working with kind of like, um, an empty slate, which was good in a way, because I felt like all the material I got, a lot of it was like the first time people had seen it or read it in a long time, you know, that weren't her family members. If someone had written about her before, um, I would have had to go to the original sources anyway. I wouldn't use another biography as like a, A first primary source. So I don't know. I think I was able to shape it in a way that I felt did justice to her story without Mm -hmm. hearing, without reading, like, although other people had written about her, it was just, you know, kind of as a side note. So I I did like it. I did like, um, and it turned out not to be that difficult to, to get all this information because her cousins had so much of it.
1: Well, I think that's a great place to End our interview with Susan bloomberg Kaysen, author of *Bernardine*, Shanghai Salon, The Story of the Doyen of Old China. Susan, I actually have two more questions for you, um, which are, uh, where can people find your work? as in, and, and not just this book, but all of your work. Um, and finally, what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be?
0: Okay, well, that's kind of a loaded question, but I will answer it. Anyway, um, so my, I have a website, www.susanb.com, and it has information about where to get the book. It can be ordered through any place people buy books. Um, and it was interesting because in May of this year, I got this idea that It was fun to write about women, Jewish women from the Midwest in the U.S. Mm -hmm. who went on to do things elsewhere and overseas. And I had not known that Golda Meir had grown up in Milwaukee, which is 90 miles north of me. So I have a literary agent and I put together a proposal and we were both super excited about it. And it went out to different editors and this was October 5th. And so... October 7th, the war broke out. There was, you know, what happened in Israel. And right now editors, um, there are some editors that are interested, but it's been really hard for them to get approval at the top just because there's so much contentiousness. Mm -hmm. And so I've been told that I'm just going to have to put this on hold for a while until things kind of settle down. Um, so, but I am really interested in, in, and this this would just be about her um, her U.S. years. It was her childhood and her teenage years in Milwaukee, and it's um, it's really like a Jane Austen story. I mean, her mom wanted to marry her off at fourteen to a thirty one year old, and she ran away from home and went to Denver to see her sister. So it was it that's my kind of thing right now. But I hope well, I, yeah.
1: <laughs> me too. Me too. I, I it sounds interesting, and, I, and 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 I hope you get a chance to. You, <clears throat> You get a chance to write it. Um, well, you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts, including many reviews by Susan, um, who is a prolific reviewer at the ARB. Um, follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find countless other interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those running in, around and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Hugo Wong, author of America's Lost Chinese: The Rise and Fall of a Migrant Family Dream. But before then, Susan, thank you so much for coming on the show today.
0: Thank you so much for having me. This has been really fun.